Chapter Seven of Eighteen Months in the War Zone by Kate John Finzi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Seven, April nineteen fifteen. April first. In spite of the difficulties of getting teams together, the football league has flourished, and today we had the great final match between the Australians and the ASC, for which, at a few hours' notice, aided by a solitary car we managed to give a fairly successful tea. Thanks to the football and the various other tournaments, the canteen is becoming quite an important factor of the little colony out here. We find that draught, chess and billiard tournaments draw the men, who are apt to be clicky and shy of each other, together more than anything else, whilst French lessons, held by a poor little Belgian soldier, himself far from fluent in the language, prove a tremendous attraction, and serve the additional purpose of adding a moiety to his minute income. We have moved on to the premises, in order to be better able to attend to our relatives, as they have a way of turning up at ten at night, quite exhausted with the novelty of their experience. To be honest, the interest of their journey seems to a great extent to mitigate the bitterness of their loss or the sadness of their visit. "'Law bless us, miss! What a lot we shall have to tell em once at home!' which we shouldn't have ad if our dear Bill hadn't died for his country, said a Manchester washerwoman today. We are a strange party at meals, for most of them have never seen a tablecloth nor slept between sheets before, and their wonderment can be well gauged. It is surprising how often one comes across nature's gentlemen. One is ashamed at not having had time to see them in ordinary life. A cab driver from Edinburgh is here today who, in spite of the fact that he had never before been outside his native town, has manners that would grace a king. April 8th. One is not always fortunate in one's companions out here, but having no choice in the matter, is fain to make the best of them. I don't think that I have described our various workers. There is, for instance, the short, drab-looking type of woman, who gives one the impression that she is capable only of practical things, a model housewife and cook, but who, on further acquaintance, affords some food for comment, for, alas, her distrait little brain is eternally going off at a tangent. She has neither method nor common sense. If there is a tactless thing to be said, she will say it. If there is a foolish thing to be done, she will do it. Today, to our horror, one of these, for instance, turned to an old man from Derbyshire, who was out to see a son dying of spotted fever, just as he was taking his departure. "'By the way,' she said, "'if you find anyone at home whose son is dying out here, "'do tell them that it is such a pretty cemetery and so well cared for.' "'I need say no more. "'At every inconvenient moment she tells one anecdotes of her family history, "'how her daughters have bought a white rabbit, "'how her second husband committed suicide, we are not surprised, "'how a third cousin has been mentioned in dispatches. "'She alternately adopts a de haut en bas, tone toward the men, or informs them that she is an officer's widow and has never done any work before, or tries to claim kinship with the enlisted navy because he is John Smith and she has a connection of the same name. Is it to be wondered that there is sometimes friction? We have had a trying time recently, and have come to the conclusion that what one does not learn of petty jealousies and feminine hate out here is not worth learning. And the genius official enemy unknown hitherto to me, is quite common. It consists of people who want one's job, or one's friends, or anything else one has, 
but most of all they want one out of the country and out of the way to keep our judgment unbiased we have conned kipling's wonderful if and find some measure of comfort in murmuring as we fall asleep if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you yet make allowance for their doubting too if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hated don't give way to hating and yet not look too good or talk too wise we have quite a number of minor worries too which culminated this evening when our last bucketful of coal borrowed from a friendly hospital having been exhausted it was found impossible to obtain more than half a litre of methylated spirits with which we hoped to carry on our work by means of primus stoves from anywhere for the first time not only hot dishes had to be abandoned the pancakes and fried fish which men like so well but even the hot drinks which we endeavoured to replace by lukewarm lemonade made from the remnants of our boiled water heaven alone knows from where we shall get our coal to-morrow for the shortage seems to be getting worse if only the people at home would realize what it means out here and cease striking when things had settled down and the place was closed i felt a blow of fresh air was imperative for the vitiated atmosphere of the rooms is choking and we have no time to walk by day as we slipped outside captain m passed what on earth are you doing here he asked i replied that we had been breathing woodbine fumes for twelve solid hours and had come out to get some air take care not to be run in by the sentries he said i will accompany you if i may for safety's sake it is true we are bounded by sentries north south east and west we walked briskly to the beach where the full moon lit up the sea forming what looked like a broad path straight up to heaven we were laughing over the tale of the immortal dr spooner who concluded one of his sermons with the words and now my dear friends i must draw to a close for i see i am already addressing beery wenches when captain m asking may i smoke proceeded to light his pipe or try to do so for each time he lit a match the breeze put it out whilst he retired to light it by the rocks someone quoted another spoonerism when to a negligent student he said you have hissed all my mystery lessons and tasted half a worm laughing and all but forgetting our weariness we turned to go home in the distance we discerned figures coming toward us steadily and from all sides strange said someone the beach seemed deserted enough when we came why it's the gendarmes i cried and sure enough it was and they were advancing rifles cocked and loaded they came straight up to us and halted four paces away just as we were debating whether to run away or trust to luck that our escort could protect us in a centurion voice the leader exclaimed accusingly you lit three matches no one denied it and on captain m parleying with them it transpired that under martial law the beach and cliffs are entirely forbidden precincts after sundown on discovering who we were they owned that they had seriously debated the advisability of shooting us from the cliffs and would certainly have done so if we had turned tail and fled insignificant though the incident is it serves to show how efficiently our allies guard their coast and how thorough and quick they are in their methods and how little they leave to chance even at a hospital base april twenty second it has been impossible to write we have been working sixteen to eighteen even twenty hours per day the rush of troops that preceded and succeeded the british success at hill sixty 
has broken up most of the camp workers, so that we have taken to rising at 4 a.m., motoring to the camp in the car now devoted to the relatives, and turning our hands at other people's jobs before it is time to begin our own. Camp work is very different from anything in the world. The crowd is such that it is impossible, with our limited number of workers and insufficient equipment, to keep supplies equal to demand. After an hour spent in handing out field service postcards, which is all the men may send from home here, one is dizzy from the crowd. Twenty thousand cards disappear in less time than it takes to tell, although each man is in reality only allowed one. They will come up time after time, pleading for a second. I have a wife and a mother, says one, whilst the wilier will ask, Can I have a second for the company sergeant major, who is outside the tent? What? The same company sergeant major, I inquired, after the twentieth applicant of this kind? If you are cutting up loaves or buttering bread, you become breathless in your haste, as the many hungry eyes gaze eagerly at the food. Many of the men have gone foodless since they embarked, ten hours ago, and some, who have eaten, have been so seasick as to be quite collapsed. They are alternately full of anticipation and trepidation about the great unknown, and a quiet, it isn't nearly as bad as it was at the beginning, sends many of them away, more reassured. The turf inside the tent is an odd mixture of slush, where the rain beats in, and almost concrete mud, where the tramping is worst. It has been found necessary to put up a barrier by the counter, which is made of empty packing cases, but often, where the crowd is greatest, it literally gets rooted up. It is hard to say which is the more impressive sight, to arrive at dawn and watch the shivering figures emerge from their tents, wrapped in those fine new blankets of theirs, and clustered round their quarters, held back by the stern arm of the military policeman until six o'clock announces that we are prepared, or nominally so, for the rush, or to watch them march off at night. On Sunday there was a service. The men came running to the tents and called for their favorite hymns. There were two oil lamps in the center, and someone secured a candle for my counter, Never can I forget that scene, averted eyes, tense-set mouths, and rugged faces with the tears rolling down. Men who had never prayed before prayed then, for they had the unknown to face, and they knew it. They lifted the tent with their voices. Then, seeing I was the last English girl many of them would ever set eyes on, a number came up to shake hands and said good-bye, and thank you. Heaven knows for what. Then we watched them march off. The camp gleamed white in the moonlight. A crescent moon was over the silver sea, across which the lights of England were plainly discernible. By the flare of one great lamp they came up out of the dark, and, company after company, like a phantom army, passed into the night. It seemed like a dream. The receding tramp, tramp, tramp. The distant sound of drums, the deserted tents and only the lazy flap of the canvas in the breeze remained to remind us of those heroes who had gone up to carry on the great game. April 24th, Sick Ward 21 What a beautiful place hospital can be, viewed from the standpoint of a patient! What matter that legs are too weak to walk or heads to think? What matter that one's old vulcanite pen feels like cast iron and runs on by itself? Here are ministering angels, who were once mere nurses. Here are friends armed with many good things, with irises and king-cups from the fields, and carnations from the south, and newspapers. Yet, alas, the news is not good. In spite of the allied landing in Gallipoli that raises our expectation of a speedy termination of things, 
The situation on the western front is bad. We are now falling back, and the Germans have started an effective offensive at Ypres. It is dreadful to be able to do nothing but listen all night long to the tramp of the newly arrived troops, the sickening sound of the creeping stretcher cases, to listen and pray that all will be well. April 29th. Hardelow. If one were asked to award the palm for good work during the war, one would not hesitate to say that it was due to those whose energies are devoted to the sick nurses. There is none of the glory, none of the kudos, none of the laurel-wreath interest that rewards those working amongst the men. Just the steady, dullish, daily duties of caring for and tending an ever-changing stream of weary women. Yet what work can have more far-reaching influence on the wounded and sick than the fact that the nursing sisters are strong and fit to cope with their strenuous work? Here, in the faraway forest of Hardelow, in the beautiful yet simple house lent by the Duke of Argyll, that, with its distempered white walls, old oak furniture, and bright chintzes, seems a veritable bit of England, the Red Cross have opened a home where worn-out nurses may rest and recuperate. It is like an oasis in this arid land, lying in the woods on a bank of luscious pine needles and green moss, while the birds sing. It seems to unaccustomed ears almost perfect, and the calm pines lift their stately heads to the clear blue sky, swaying rhythmically, contentedly, in the breeze. It is intoxicating. End of chapter 7